AMU. American Military University is proud to present In Public Safety Matters. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Leishan Kranick. Today, we're going to be talking about what it's like to be a crime scene investigator and some of the incredible advancements in forensic science technology. Today, my guest is Dr. Dina Weiss, who recently retired after a 24-year career as a crime scene investigator and fingerprint examiner in a Central Florida Police Department. As part of her career experience, she worked as a seriologist, and she has testified as an expert in more than 200 federal and circuit court cases throughout Florida. Dr. Weiss is also an associate professor at American Military University, teaching courses in criminal justice and forensic science. Dina, welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So I want to start out by just congratulating you on your recent retirement after 24 years. How does it feel to be officially retired? Well, uh, honestly, I miss the challenge of examining fingerprints and solving cases, but I have a lot less stress in my life now, and I can now go for a walk three times a week. I can enjoy the Florida sunshine. Um, I'm not testifying in court, you know, with very short notice. So um, I'm enjoying it. Oh, good. I'm so glad to hear that. It's well-deserved. So I was hoping that we could start our conversation by just giving our listeners a little bit of a background of how you got interested in forensic science and how you eventually became a crime scene investigator. Can you just talk about your background? Sure. I first became interested in forensics when I attended a forensic seminar in college. Um, I hate to age myself, but I went to a very small all-girls school in Virginia, and I initially was going to be a chemistry major with the intent of doing research. Um, this was in the early 1980s, and I had never, ever heard of forensics. So when they announced the seminar, I was like, well, let me go see what this is. And um, I was just amazed. The field seemed much more exciting to me than chemistry research. So um, I went ahead and got my four-year degree in chemistry, and then I pursued a forensic science master's degree after college, which was one of the first programs um, developed in Richmond, Virginia. <clears throat> and then after graduate school, I was hired by the Florida Department of Law Enforcement as a crime analyst, and FDLE is our state lab system. Um, and for them, I worked in the microanalysis section, conducting hair and fractured material examinations, and then moved on to the serology section. Um, this discipline involves the examination of body fluids, such as blood, semen, saliva, and involves DNA analysis. So I, I worked at FDLE for five years, but the whole time I was there, I felt like I was missing something. I was in a lab coat every day in the sterile environment. I was conducting forensic examinations like I had trained to do in school, but I wasn't getting the whole picture. I just had a stack of files, 100 plus, you know, every day that I walked into, um, and all they were were case summaries. You know, I never had a conversation with the detective. I didn't have any crime scene pictures. It was pretty much like research, like I was trying not to do <laughs> when I got my degree. So I wanted to respond to crime scenes and put two and two together. I wanted to collect evidence and attend autopsies and 
and interact with people, the medical examiner, the detectives. And I was also commuting an hour to work one way every day and had two little ones. So it was cramping my style a little bit, you know, my 12, 14 hour days. So um, I started a relationship with some of the people at our local police department in their crime lab, and they were excited to have me when they had an opening and before long they did. So I started working at the local police department and at this job, I got to work crime scenes and it was everything and more that I imagined it would be. It was just so exciting, never a dull moment, not the same thing every day. And I fell in love with processing the crime scenes for latent prints. I kind of had a knack for it, I was pretty good at it. So eventually I became a latent print examiner as well, which I have done for for 20 years. Excellent. So it's very cool to hear how you have obviously a very strong background in science and then how you were able to really apply that to the career in helping law enforcement agencies, you know, essentially solve all these crimes using technology and processing their evidence. And I was wondering, obviously technology is a huge piece of that. Can you talk a little bit about what I can only assume is a major advancement in technology from when you you first started out, even with, you know, fingerprint analysis. I imagine that has advanced just incredibly during your career. Yes, we now have the automated fingerprint identification system, which that's actually been around um, for quite a few years. But when somebody's arrested, their fingerprints are automatically collected and put into the system. And when we develop a fingerprint at a crime scene, if it has enough individual characteristics and it's not distorted or smeared, we can take that print and photograph it and enter it into the system and mark its individualizing features and ask the system to give us, say, the closest 10 to 15 candidates in the database that may match it. And it comes up with a candidate list. And then as a fingerprint examiner, I go through all of those candidates and compare the known fingerprint um, from the system to the crime scene fingerprint. And I try and make an identification. There's actually two systems. There's IAFIS, which is the national database. And then there's AFIS, which is just statewide. And AFIS is where we make the most fingerprint identification hits because most criminals stay local. And that's the local database. So I have a lot of experience with that. And the database has advanced to including palm prints now, which palm prints are a huge contributor to crime scenes. We are always collecting palm prints on cars and windows. Besides fingerprints, um, of course, DNA is is something new every few years, it, it seems like. And probably the transition from private genealogy genealogy companies to FDLE, the state crime lab, developing their own genetic genealogy program has been a huge advancement. The genealogy team works with Parabon Nano Labs, um, and this just takes DNA testing a step further than what we've had in the past. The combined DNA index systems, CODIS, is our national DNA database, like we have the fingerprint database. CODIS is our DNA database. And we can take samples from crime scenes and enter the DNA sample, whether it be a sample of blood, a sample of semen, we can enter it into this database. And if the suspect's been arrested and has a profile in the DNA database, CODIS, 
a match will occur. So that's what we've done in the past. But with this genealogy team um, in Parabon, we now can run our DNA profile. If it does not come back with a match, we can run this profile through genetic genealogy testing and can determine the gender and also lead investigators to relatives of the offender. Genetic genealogy really became well-known to the public anyway through the Golden State Killer case and using um, genealogy to track down the relatives of, um, you know, the suspect or the murderer. And uh, I was wondering, Dina, is that something that's just become very accessible now to CSIs? Like it's something that is done with basically on every case or is it is it only on the ones that there's not more information available? We It has some criteria. It's only used when it's last resort, where all the evidence has been examined. It did not make a CODIS hit. Um, and then we go this route. And there's been a lot of um, questions about reliability, qualitative analysis, you know, what the protocols are in these private labs, which is what makes it such a unique opportunity for the Florida State Crime Lab because they're working hand in hand with Parabon Nano Labs, so um, they're following the lab's protocol and everything is done, you know, in in their laboratory system. So you're not going to have as many questions about, you know, how whether protocol was followed and and whether the testing equipment is is quantified and tested for contamination routinely. There's a lot of criteria that has to be met in a crime laboratory. They ask you oftentimes about this during a, a criminal trial. So, so it's a great program. And in fact, just before I retired, we actually solved a case using Parabon that I had been working on <clears throat> with detectives for 20 years. And it was, a, it was a homicide from 1981. And I had compared fingerprints from this case, hundreds of them for years. For years, we... Anybody that lived in the neighborhood, anybody the family knew, we compared fingerprints to just hundreds of people. We sent the DNA profile from the sexual battery kit to CODIS and made no hit. Well, when we started working with Parabon, we came back with a hit um, on the sexual battery kit and solved the case. And it ended up, the suspect, of course, had never committed any crimes in his entire life besides this one. And he did it when he was 20 years old. And he was one of the boys' football coaches. Wow. That nobody had ever questioned. He had dropped the, you know, one of the boys off after practice a few times, and his name just never came up. So that was a very successful case that just made the papers recently. What was that like when you realized that you had a hit? I'm just curious from an emotional standpoint. It was very exciting because we, it was one of those cold cases we did not think we would ever solve. And the boys, even though they were, you know, grown men, they would still call and come in monthly and they were very emotional and often cried and didn't understand why we couldn't solve it. And so it was just so rewarding to, to see them. And they were very hurt when they found out it was actually somebody they knew, but at least they had some closure. Wow. Well, congratulations. I'm you know, it's so amazing to hear how this new type of technology can just solve these cases that, like you said, were basically unsolvable for a few decades. So that's amazing. We'll include the a link to that article in our show notes so people can learn more about it. Yes, the victim's name was Linda Slayton. 
So um, one thing I want to talk to you about, a lot of our listeners are law enforcement officers, and I wanted to get your perspective on evidence collection. And, you know, obviously you would go to crime scenes and that would be, you know, your primary role. But I was wondering, do you have some thoughts or recommendations for officers when they enter a crime scene? Is there something you'd always, you know, you'd like every officer to know when they come into a crime scene to help the crime scene investigators? Well, now more than ever, the officers need to tread lightly when they enter a crime scene, uh, especially with the sensitivity of forensic tests such as touch DNA. It involves a huge contamination issue just with people that live wherever the crime happened and with officers arriving at the scene. We liked for only the first officer at the scene um, and the detectives assigned to the case to actually enter the crime scene besides us crime scene investigators. What that means is the colonels, the lieutenants, the chief of police, they have no business anywhere near where the crime actually occurred. And they like to show up. They like to be seen there, but they need to be in the corner somewhere with talking to the media and not entering the scene because they're not providing any kind of service to assist the investigation. The first officer at the scene is very important because as soon as he makes the scene safe, he needs to attempt to determine where the suspect entered and choose another route into the crime scene. If, if the suspect broke into the back door, you know, the officer should enter through the front door. This will preserve a lot of evidence and prevent the contamination right off the bat. The officer should also wear personal protective equipment, PPE, typically just Masks, booties, and gloves are required unless it's a decomp scene or the officer finds out, you know, that the person was ill that is dead inside. And, and if that's the case, they need to wear a full body suit and maybe a respirator. A lot of them forget to put their booties on. So it's it's not uncommon for me to work a, a robbery at a bank robbery and pull all of these boot prints off of the floor and the in the bank and have to go back and pull all the officers that were at the scene and take copies of their boot impressions and say, oh, guess what? This isn't the bad guys. These are your impressions. So they, they need to remember at least their masks, their gloves, and their booties. But in a nutshell, the officers, they want to avoid leaving boot prints. They want to avoid fingerprints anywhere. Um, and of course, they should not spit or sneeze anywhere in the crime scene. If they find evidence like a bullet or a firearm, I know they're always excited. They want to pick it up and, and show the crime scene investigator what they found. But really, they need to just place a marker near that piece of evidence so we can get it photographed exactly where it was before it's moved. And they should avoid touching it. Some of the worst problems we have is not only with officers, but with EMS and firemen. They'll come into a suicide scene. And of course, the first thing they do is check to see if the victim is alive. And if it's a gunshot wound, then they will oftentimes just take the gun out of the, the victim's hand and set it on a nightstand somewhere or kick it out of the way for their own safety. But then they leave by the time the crime scene investigate gets there. And we're told it's a suicide, but we're looking at the firearm and it's on the table across the room. And we're like, I don't think it's a suicide. So... We offer training routinely for the firemen and the EMS on situations like this, and as well as our officers, just little things to watch out for to make our life a little easier and not have them, you know, 
dragged in to have their boot impressions taken or their finger, well, their fingerprints are already in the system, but that's just more work for me to do to have to eliminate the officer's fingerprints off of evidence items. Nice. Those are great recommendations. And just to make sure our audience all understands this, could you explain um, what touch DNA is and how it's different than regular DNA, I guess, or regular ways of analyzing DNA? Yes. Body fluid DNA is going to be your blood, saliva, semen, vaginal fluid, but touch DNA is actually epithelial cells on your hands that you are excreting daily when you grab things. You don't even have to grab them with any kind of force. Just if you touch things, you're leaving these epithelial cells that are constantly shedding. You're leaving these cells on items and we can get DNA from these epithelial cells. So this opened a whole new door for us. It's great that we can find a suspect's DNA on the gear shift or the steering wheel of a car now, but we're also getting a lot of other profiles on items because so many people are shedding epithelial cells and they don't disappear that easily. So contamination um, is a lot of problems with it. The crime lab won't always do analysis um, for burglary scenes or um, motor vehicle thefts because they're just overwhelmed with the evidence. They try and stick to just violent crimes because there's so much processing to do and so many different DNA profiles that need to be separated because they've got the epithelial cells that touch DNA everywhere. So it's been the most helpful on evidence that we submit, such as firearms, where we're getting touch DNA on the grips of the firearms or doorknobs at burglaries, specific items that may not have been touched a lot or or that we get to where they've touched it in a short amount of time. We know that like they were the last one to touch it. Then, we're, then we can pretty much be sure that that's the profile we're going to get. Interesting. I'm wondering, does touch DNA, can that be used in like cold case evidence, you know, evidence that's been preserved for a period of time? Or is it something that needs to be relatively fresh, quote unquote? We are still finding touch DNA on old cases. In the, the Linda Slayton case, we thought for sure we would find some on the, the coat hangers, uh, but it was such a small surface area that we just could not get a strong enough profile. But it is strong evidence. We've even found it on clothing. Like if, if a suspect grabs an individual, I had a recent case where a robber, um, we didn't find any fingerprints anywhere, but he had grabbed the back of the manager's shirt and shoved him into a room and we swabbed his whole shirt and his DNA, his touch DNA was on the bank manager's shirt. Is the collection of that kind of DNA a lot different than what you were doing in the past? Does it require a different skill set or how do you collect that kind of evidence? No, it can be swabbed or scraped um, the same as with dried blood or semen evidence. It's about the same procedure. You just have to be sure to use sterile swabbings and make sure these swabbings dry. If we're swabbing a shirt, we might want to put just a little bit of saline on the swab, sterile saline, and then swab the shirt. And then we, we need to let the swab dry before we submit it to the lab for testing. But it's, it's a fairly simple procedure that we've trained some of our officers to do. On every shift, we have one crime scene officer that's trained routinely on collecting fingerprints, collecting gunshot residue kits, and collecting any kind of DNA evidence. So they can depend on that one officer in their unit that on that shift that can help collect evidence if our crime scene unit can't get out there. 
they don't do it on major crimes, but they may do it for a burglary to a vehicle or a simple burglary to a, a residence that doesn't involve a lot of evidence collection. Just kind of helps us out because there's a lot of crime every day and every night, and there's only four crime scene technicians, and they work every day, eight to five, and then they're on shifts at night. Like one crime scene investigator is on call one week out of the month. That definitely makes sense to kind of cross-train regular officers so that they have some crime scene experience. They're a big help. Like when we have burglaries to vehicles at car dealerships where there's 50 cars that have been broken into, they're always the first ones to jump in and say, hey, you know, I'll help you process. And so it's, it's good teamwork. Excellent. So as you're describing this technology and how it's applied and used, one thing that came to mind is I know you have a lot of experience testifying in court. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that part of your job and and maybe even offer some insight to other officers who may be having to testify in court, strategies that you use or things that you've learned over the years. My testimony in court is a lot different than the officers because I'm allowed to give opinions and they're stating the facts. (laughs) So the officers just basically have to stick to their investigative interviews with the suspects and their interactions with the crime scene investigators. As a latent print examiner or crime scene technician, I have to go in and talk about scientific methods and protocols and why I can say a fingerprint matches or why it doesn't match or why maybe there wasn't a fingerprint found on a gun. So there's a lot more educational prep, I guess you could say, for a forensic examiner to testify. And we are questioned by the defense on theory all the time. If the evidence technique that we used that they feel does not meet the standards of the court, we have to provide background on it. We have to provide slideshows of the evidence and make charts of of unknown fingerprint and a known fingerprint and show exactly what we were comparing. It's a different kind of testimony, but either way, You have to be a good writer and a proficient speaker in order to testify in court, and that's for officers and crime scene investigators. And I imagine it's fairly stressful. Like over the years, I'm sure you've done it enough that you feel increasingly confident about it. But is it still a pretty stressful thing to go through? Extremely. They always joke with me at work because I testify more than anybody. As I walk out the door, why are you so nervous? Why are you so nervous? Like, well, it's safe. It's safer for you to be nervous because then you're more alert, you know, and I'm, I read and prepare and as many years as I've been doing it, I'm always nervous. But as soon as I get on the stand and spit out my background and my qualifications, I slowly start to calm down and talk to the jury and explain to them exactly what I did. And that's in an unbiased manner. That's all I can do. Just try and be successful doing it. And I imagine your academic training plays a part in that as well. You mentioned having to do a lot of research um, on the case and all the the technology and all that. And as a PhD, you obviously did a lot of research and writing um, for your academic credentials. So I imagine that helps out a lot. It does. My undergraduate degree was in chemistry and I earned a sociology degree as well, which back in the 80s included criminal justice classes, whereas now there's actually criminal justice degrees. And the criminal justice classes provided me background regarding the justice system. And my chemistry degree assisted me in understanding, applying scientific methodology and theory 
And so it's important for anybody who wants to go into this field to, to have a little bit of a science background. It's, it's kind of two different kinds of jobs that I worked. If you're going to be an employee for a state crime lab, and most students don't understand this, the educational requirements are pretty high. Back when I worked there, every single crime scene analyst there had at least a master's degree, if not a PhD, because they had to have a lot of scientific knowledge. Whereas if you are a crime scene investigator working for a local police department, the educational requirements typically are just an AA, and you can have an AA in, in criminal justice and you'll be fine. The education job requirements can vary depending on the area of the country you live in. And, and I always encourage my students to look into that you know, before they get too much into the degree program, because some places like Chicago require crime scene investigators to be sworn officers. Whereas in Florida, where I live, we were just civilian employees. We were not sworn officers. When you talk about the educational component of this, you know, you mentioned some of the requirements for different positions. When you have students come to you and say, I want to be a crime scene investigator like you, do you have specific recommendations in terms of their academic pursuits? I know obviously science is a, is a big part of it, but specifically, you know, forensic science courses or concentrations? Yes. If they can do a crime scene investigation certificate, you know, along with their criminal justice degree, that's helpful. Or if they can just take electives that involve the pathology of death or crime scene investigations, that will as assist them with just their basic criminal justice knowledge. And of course, internships with the police department, you learn so much. You can also intern at um, the medical examiner's office. A lot of my students that want to be crime scene investigators, they've seen all the shows, but they haven't experienced the smells and the sights. And I tell them, if you can call your medical examiner's office and arrange to view an autopsy, you need to do that before you decide that this is your career. As I have seen many crime scene investigators be hired by our department, and after their first really gruesome crime scene or their first really bad decomp autopsy, they're putting their keys on the counter and walking out. Yeah, I can't even imagine. We need to take a short break. We'll be right back with more from Dr. Dina Weiss. Protecting the public from health challenges such as epidemics requires people with knowledge and skill who are capable of being change agents. At American Military University, you will learn the skills needed to improve today's public health in local communities and around the globe. Take the next step and apply today at amuonline.com. And we're back talking to Dr. Dina Weiss about her career as a crime scene investigator. On this podcast and with a lot of our articles, we talk about stress management for anyone who works in the law enforcement field. And, you know, you are a person whose job it is to go to these scenes and process them. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about how you manage that just from a kind of a psychological and mental health standpoint. I imagine it's just incredibly stressful. Um, do you have some, what are your, your thoughts on how you've dealt with that over the years? I used to tell my husband that I could never be a dentist or, and I didn't want to be a doctor because I didn't like to clean the spit pans out when I was a candy striper. Um, but I just think some people are born to do certain jobs. Um, 
and they move on if they can't handle them. With our job, probably one of the most difficult situations I had was dealing with crime scenes involving children. I responded to traffic fatalities involving children, um, homicides where parents killed a child to get back at a spouse, accidental deaths um, such as drownings and <clears throat> newborn suffocations where they bring the, the you know baby in bed with them and accidentally roll over on them. And these were particularly difficult due to seeing the excruciating pain that the parents are going through when they realize they rolled over on their child overnight or they didn't watch them for two seconds and they're in the pool. Uh, in these situations, it, it makes for a really bad day or it was difficult leaving my own two little ones at home to go work a crime scene in the middle of the night or just not be able to respond to daycare um, immediately when they're sick. There's many times I'd be reading my son a book at night and I'd get my, my pager would go off and I'd have to go out to a crime scene. And I'll never forget one night he overheard my conversation with the detective that it was a suicide. A man shot himself in the head. And I didn't really think he was listening to me as he's sitting here with me, but he started to cry when he found that I was leaving. And I left. And when I came home, my husband said that my mother had called after I left. And my son, who was, he was only five, he answered the phone. And my, my mom said, why are you crying? He said, mommy had to stop reading me a book because some dummy shot himself in the head. <laughs> so it was, it was rough. And I can remember one time working a scene during bull season, which down here in Florida, that's um, alligator mating season. And someone had spotted a skull in a giant alligator nest in the middle of a lake. And they called the crime scene unit to come out and retrieve the skull and determine if any other skeletal remains were nearby or in the nest or anything. Well, it's not real safe to go out there during bull season or any, any time to go near an alligator nest. So they sent me out into the lake with my waders on with two snipers on either side of me to shoot any alligators that came at me as I went towards the alligator nest. I was the new hire, so that's, you know, it wasn't like drawn straws. They just told me, yep, this is you. You're going out there. So I was halfway out into the lake, almost to the alligator nest, and my cell phone went off. And I was like, oh. So I just glanced at the number, and it was my son's daycare. I was like, oh, why are they calling me? So I, um, I quickly answer the phone, and the, the director says, you need to come pick your son up. He's running a fever. I was like, well, I can't really do that right now. <laughs> I didn't tell her I was in the middle of the lake, you know, with alligators. So all of those things were challenges to me and, you know, made it a little more stressful to deal with the job. But I worked with a team of three girls most of my career. We didn't have a, a huge turnover except for, you know, our fourth position. It seemed like it was rotating. Somebody would stay a month, two months, and they just couldn't handle their job and, and they would leave. But three girls and I worked together for most of my career and, we learned to support each other, even at the most horrific crime scenes. And it, it seemed like uh, some of the scenes affected some of us worse than others, but it seemed one of us always remained strong. So we were just very good together. And of course, hugs and humor always help, you know, and just one of those things that you, you just deal with, but you also lean on everybody you work with as well. Yeah, I hear that pretty often from officers, how important that camaraderie and you know, they talk about obviously brotherhood, sisterhood, and just really, like you said, leaning on each other to get you through 
just what I can't even imagine as a civilian. I can't imagine what what you've seen. Well, and it's weird how some some scenes would trigger some of us and and not others. I mean, I can remember a crime scene where my my boss just went numb and was ghost white and just stood there, couldn't do anything. We had to take her to the van. She she couldn't even help us process the scene. And the rest of us were fine. It was a accidental crime scene where a, a woman that worked for a tree company had not pulled her hair back and her hair got caught in the big wood chipper and she'd been completely pulled through the wood chipper. And my boss had been there for since she was 18 years old and she just could not process that crime scene. And, you know, other times it was little crime scenes that would affect somebody. So, yes, camaraderie is a big thing, leaning on each other. Did you also have other personal, I almost want to say coping mechanisms? Like you mentioned having um, what sounds like a wonderful family. And do you have any other kind of advice for either new officers or, or those who are a few years in about just suggestions on, on how to kind of manage that? You just kind of have to leave it at the door when when you come home. I was... When I first got married, I was kind of insulted that my husband didn't ask me where I was, everything I did all day long. But he, in the long run, I think it helped me to not have to come home and relive it all. He, you know, I would come home if dinner was ready or if the kids needed to be put to bed, we, we just right, went right into that mode and didn't rehash what I've been doing. By the time I got cleaned up and ready to go, you know, I just went right back into my, my home life. So... I was lucky I never really suffered from nightmares or or um, not being able to deal with anything as far as crime scenes go. There's a few that, that linger in your head, but um, I just was lucky enough to be able to jump from work to my home life and be fine. Wonderful. That's great to hear. And now that you're entering this new phase in retirement, you know, you talked a little bit earlier about how you're, you know, adjusting and I know it's still relatively new, but I was wondering, was there anything that you did to just kind of prepare for retirement or now that you've been in it a little bit, recommendations for officers who are nearing their retirement? Any thoughts for them? I think sometimes men have a more difficult time handling it than women because women jump right into other responsibilities, like, you know, maybe helping the kids with you know, their college applications or babysitting their kids, you know, there's just so many things we can get our hands in as women. Um, And I know I I say this from experience from watching my dad retire. He, he wasn't law enforcement, but he worked in government for 45 years. And when he retired, he got up in the morning and had coffee with my mom. And then he literally sat at the breakfast bar until she came home for lunch. He just couldn't get used to not having, you know, that daily routine. So you really, I think the thing that helps me the most is I did not lose touch. I, you know, I still walk the lake with a couple of the the people that I worked with. I have lunch with them once a month. I don't miss a birthday lunch. And if there's um, an interesting case, they usually call me and ask my opinion. So I guess it's just best not to go cold turkey. Don't just completely walk away from it because, you know, it's always going to be a part of your life. So just walk away gradually, you know, but still stay in contact with the people that you spent much, much of your life with. Right. And I think another thing that you're talking to about here is just that balance. Like, I think a lot of officers who I've talked with, you know, being an officer is their identity. It's all they know. It's all they, all their friends are officers. You know, it's just, they've been so immersed in this field that when they're now out of it, 
that transition is just incredibly hard because they feel like they've lost a part of them. Can you speak to that at all? I think actually teaching helps a lot. A lot of my friends that are officers that are getting ready to retire, that's what they transitioned to is teaching. It's very rewarding to be able to teach someone else your skills and know they're going to replace you. Some of them can also volunteer with the police explorers, the young high schoolers that are um, coming up in the world and want to be police officers. It's almost like the Boy Scouts, a unit where they compete and they learn skills and officers can volunteer to do that and still be into things. And Citizen Police Academy, that also always needs officers to come speak. I mean, I just think still being involved is is a big part of accepting retirement. And like you said, being able to share your experience and help train others and to follow in your footsteps, essentially. And it's very rewarding, especially the military. I love to teach our military students because they have such strong ethical choices they make in their career. They're, they're used to committing themselves 100% to their job, and they do that in their schoolwork. And to know that they're fighting for our country, but then turning around and coming home and wanting to be law enforcement, it just makes teaching them very rewarding. And very honorable to continue serving, serving their country and keeping all of us safe. Exactly. And some of them don't miss a beat. I mean, the minute they're done with the military, they're right in law enforcement. Well, Dina, this has just been so enlightening. And I just really appreciate you sharing your expertise uh, with our listeners. And I, I wanted to know if there's anything else that you wanted to add to our conversation. I just encourage um, any other instructors to make sure that you offer the students advice on what's required for whether it be a police officer or a crime scene investigator, let the students know what the educational and job requirements are as you get to know them in the first week in the introductions. And that's about it, I guess. Yeah, and that's another really wonderful thing about AMU is so many of our faculty like yourself have incredible uh, field experience um, in what they're teaching. So it's not, you're not just an academic, you're, you know, you're a professional in this field. So really brings a lot to the classroom. So thank you for that. So thank you again, Dina, for sharing your expertise. And I want to thank our listeners uh, for joining us today. Be well and stay safe. For more information about our university, visit us at amuonline.com. Thank you for listening. AMU. American Military University.